0: Yeah. Welcome to the Wander Learn podcast. I'm your host, France Tapon. In this episode, I interview Trent Hone, who is the author of Mastering the Art of Command. This is a book about Admiral Nimitz, who led the United States in World War II in the Pacific. He was United States Navy Admiral. Now, you might wonder what this has to do with wandering. Well, I like to wander all over history and also learn about what sites that we can go in the Pacific Ocean that could be or tourism sites. The other thing is, I want to delve in a little bit more about the current challenges that we face. I ask him questions about the United States Navy, whether it should be downsized. Could hypersonic missiles make navies obsolete? And what did he think about the recent Taiwan war game scenario? Is this like the last time that we should be able to visit as tourists Taiwan before it goes under? I've always wondered, like, why does the United States military have to be so big? What would happen if we just shrank the size of military to about 25% or less of its current size? And then what does he think about the current Russo-Ukrainian war and how will it end? Hope you enjoy this. I want you to start by just telling a little bit about the character of Chester Nimitz, who was an admiral for the United States Navy during World War II. Tell me that story about him crashing a plane in San Francisco Bay Area. I think that's just a telling story about his character.
1: This uh, plane crash is, I think, an excellent story that provides a window into into Nimitz's leadership style, and that's one of the reasons I wanted to to include it in the book. So it happens in late June, 1942, after the Battle of Midway. Nimitz and members of his staff are flying from Pearl Harbor to San Francisco, and they are in a seaplane. And the seaplane is coming down into San Francisco Bay. Uh, it's supposed to land there, and you know normally a water landing would be would be fine. But it, it turns out there was some debris in the water. And it wasn't seen until it was too late. So the plane hits the debris and flips over. Uh, the hull is pierced and it's it's going to sink. So uh, Nimitz and the other passengers in the plane are, are thrown about. He happens to be in a chair that is facing backward. So he's hurt a little bit less uh, in the impact. He doesn't have any any major injuries. But nearly everyone else on the plane suffers you know, one or more broken bones. The pilot was killed. Uh, Lind McCormick, who is the head of Nimitz's war plan section, breaks two vertebrae in in his back. You know, boats are coming out of the plane, you know, uh, a rescue effort. And Nimitz refuses to get into one uh, until everybody's out of the plane, until all the the injured people uh, and the the pilot's body are out. Uh, That happens before too long. Uh, Also, The, the, the corpsmen who are showing up, you know, they're, they're putting blankets over, over the injured people. And, uh, supposedly every time one of these is placed on Nimitz, he takes it off and he puts it on someone who's more injured because he's still physically able. He hasn't been hurt terribly badly. Um, and he starts to get in the way. And one of the, the seamen who's conducting the rescue effort is like, you know, get out of the way. Not really concerned about rank. Doesn't really know who Nimitz is, but knows he has a job to do, get the injured people out of the plane. So he chases Nimitz into a boat. Uh, and as Nimitz is in the boat, it's starting to sail away f- uh, from the wrecked plane. And he's standing up in the back. And he's got a blanket around him now uh, to, to help keep him warm uh, from, from uh, his wet clothes. And the Coxswain, uh, who's running the boat, you know, essentially is the is the captain of that small craft. Says, you know, sit down, <laughs> you you fool, you're endangering yourself. Get down. Nimitz does, and and as he sits down, his um, arm insignia shows up out from underneath the blanket, showing his rank. And the Coxswain is. You know, yeah, showing his rank. You know, full admiral here, just got yelled at. <laughs> uh, and so, <laughs> <laughs> the, yeah, so the coxswain who welded him is, is trying to apologize. Like, oh, you know, I'm sorry, sir. I didn't mean to. Don't, you know, don't write me up or anything. Uh, and Nimitz's response, I think, is is fantastic. He's like, nope, stick to your guns. You were right. Right.
0: Yeah, no, that says, says so much about him because, I mean, he was basically yelled at twice, chewed out by, you know, the rescue crew, and then again by this the guy who's manning the boat. And in both cases, he didn't try to pull rank or, you know, get offended. He just humbly said, okay, yeah. And also the humility of handing over the blankets to the people who are in most need. For those who are trying to visualize that is is the, um, remember when that plane landed in the Hudson River, that was kind of a similar story when they had to make a fairly quick evacuation. and, And he was basically, Nimitz was one of the last to get off that plane. Amazing story. A lot of people who are listening to this podcast like to travel. And so if there are history buffs, and who love history stuff. Is there a place in the Pacific that you would really recommend going to? Like the first thing that came to mind, of course, was Pearl Harbor, but that maybe is a little bit too low hanging fruit. But maybe something a little bit more exotic. Where would you want to go? Or maybe places that you've personally been to that really were uh, compelling places. That were scenes of important World War II history in the Pacific Ocean.
1: You're making me a little jealous with that question because I haven't been able to travel extensively in the Pacific. I have been to to Pearl Harbor. I do think that that is a really interesting place to visit because what impressed me was its its small size. You know, we you, you can see the the films, you can uh, look at pictures, and with the you know the, the the battleships lined up there. It, it it gave me the impression that Pearl Harbor was a larger place, but you go there and and you see it. You see Ford Island and you see the remains of of the battleship Arizona, and and it's it's small. And it's no wonder that naval officers before World War II felt like it it could be a bit of a trap, uh, because you know, there's not much room to to maneuver. So Hawaii, I think, is an excellent place to visit. Uh, other places that I think would be really interesting that I would love to see. I, I'd really like to go to uh, Lunga Point at, at Guadalcanal in the Solomon Islands uh, because I've, I've seen photographs of uh, Savo Island, which is across what, what the, the Navy sailors called Iron Bottom Sound because of all the fighting there, all the ships that sank. And you know, Savo Island is, is not very far away, too. So this is another small area, but this is an area where there was a lot of, um, a lot of battles, a lot of fighting in, in a very condensed space. I think the marshals would be very interesting, uh, especially Kwajalein, which was a, a major objective of Nimitz forces in early 1944. Uh, I think the the small size of those atolls uh, would really convey an impression of you know just how little terrain there was in the Pacific, particularly the central Pacific, and how it's dwarfed by the surrounding waters. I've heard some... Uh, stories about how moving uh, visiting Saipan is. Saipan was the scene of a great deal of fighting uh, in the mid-1944, and uh, a very uh, sorrowful event. There were Japanese civilians who who lived on Saipan, and, and they had been convinced of that um, they would be horribly abused if they were captured by uh, the forces of the United States. and And so some of them threw themselves off uh, a cliff, uh, on the Island, uh, you know, basically jumped to their, to their deaths. Uh, and I'm told that visiting that spot, uh, can be quite moving the sands of Iwo Jima. You know, there's a famous movie, that name. Uh, but I, I, and I have a small vial that a friend brought me back from, uh, from a visit there, uh, of that sand, but uh, that would be, I think, a very impressive place to visit, uh, you know, how uh, alien that landscape seems to be because, it, you know, it's a volcanic island and... Uh... A, sort of atypical from, from other places that, that humans normally inhabit.
0: Iwo Jima is near what, I don't even know where it is. Is it near Guam?
1: No, it's it's uh, south of of the, the Japanese home islands uh, and, and not, not too far south. It was within... So
0: south of Okinawa?
1: No, east of Okinawa.
0: Okay. I guess I got to pull out Google Maps.
1: <laughs> it's, it's in the Bonin Islands. Okay,
0: <laughs> Yeah, I would love to go there because apparently the, the, that was... I mean, that was obviously a a titanic battle, um, and it was covered in a couple of movies as well. Uh, Did you watch those movies, uh, the two movies that were made by Clint Eastwood, I believe? Um, And did you feel that was relatively... Fair depiction.
1: I've seen the one. I I haven't seen. I haven't seen the other.
0: One was from the perspective of the United States, and then one was from the perspective of the
1: Japanese. Exactly. It struck me as uh, the one that I did see is 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 quite a good movie. It's a really desperate fight because you know by this time you know Iwo Jima is invaded in early 1944, and 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 the Japanese know that. Uh, as far as war material goes, right, the ships, planes, ammunition, et cetera, uh, they cannot compete uh, with the forces of the United States and its allies. And and so they have shifted to a strategy that is is, is designed to um, injure, kill, maim, uh, as, as many allied soldiers as possible, soldiers and Marines. And so that's what they're attempting to do in Iwo Jima, not necessarily win not kick the marines off of the island but just you know kill as many of them as possible so that they can undermine uh the morale of the people of the united states and and convince them that the war isn't, isn't isn't worth fighting uh not to not that it isn't worth fighting at all, but that it isn't worth fighting to the degree that would be necessary to impose unconditional surrender on Japan.
0: I'm going to ask you two what-if questions that, you know, counterfactuals that historians like to occasionally entertain. I guess some of them hate to do it, but uh, a couple of them. One is the idea that what if those aircraft carriers that had normally been stationed in Pearl Harbor had been there? In other words, let's say the Pearl Harbor attack was pretty effective overall. But imagine if it was even more Effective, like it really knocked out the entire navy there. A lot of ships were kind of like only I think I think only the Arizona was completely obliterated, but almost all the other ones were just kind of maimed and could be brought back to life and resurrected one way or another. But. What if it had been more devastating? Do you think that would have been a blow that would have taken out, or would have just made it so that the war ended in 1946 or 1947 instead of 1945?
1: This is an excellent question because one of the things that I tried to uh, really draw out is you know we tend to think of or you know evaluations of the Pearl Harbor attack tend to focus on the material damage, and and that's important, right? You said Arizona is is destroyed, uh, Oklahoma also does not return to service. That's a that's another battleship, uh, and many others are. Are damaged to varying degrees. Some of them don't return to the war until a good number of years later. If carriers had been there, then it becomes, you know, there's more significant material damage, but it also becomes more significant psychologically because there is less to strike back with Nimitz would have had less material to begin to to. Initiate offensive operations and, and, and go after Japanese positions with the with the earlier carrier raids, so I I think there's even a possibility that that, that something more, far more serious happens uh, in the Pacific if if the carriers are there far more serious from the standpoint of the, the Japanese may be able to consolidate their positions uh, to a large extent. Uh, there may not be any uh, substantial offensive operation for, in the Pacific for a long time, and and maybe the American people get to the point where they don't think it's worth it. Maybe you know we end the war in 1946 or 1947 with uh, significant Japanese dominion uh, over large parts of uh, of the Western Pacific. It's probably unlikely, but I think it's a it's a possibility that you know if we're dealing in, in counterfactuals, we got to entertain
0: maybe, Trent, it would be either the war ends in 1947 with a U.S. victory, or it ends in 1942 with a Japanese victory. Let me ask you one more counterfactual, which is when I was growing up uh, during the Cold War era, we had this kind of standard line, which is the two nuclear weapons that we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki were justified because if we had not done that, then it would have cost millions of U.S. lives and and that's why we had to do it. And if we hadn't, then Japanese would have surrendered. But recently, in the last few years, I've kind of noticed that there's a lot of pushback on that narrative, and saying that no, those bombs were completely superfluous, and they really were just a war crime, and and they shouldn't they We would have won the war. that The Jap- Japanese were going to surrender, and and they were completely uh, unnecessary and cruel. And so, what is your take? on those two nuclear bombs that we dropped. But One more thing, and, and other people saying, no, it's actually good that we dropped them because then people could see how devastating they were so that then if we hadn't dropped it, then we would have entered the Cold War with a bunch of nuclear armed states and especially the USSR and, and US without having known what a nuclear bomb does to a population. So it's actually good that we had these, you know, little tiny nuclear bombs that we dropped on Hiroshima and Nagasaki so that we said, wow, if those little tiny bombs did so much damage, can you imagine if we dropped our 20 Megaton bombs on our cities; it would be, you know, a thousand times that. Anyway, so go ahead and answer.
1: I do think that there has been a lot of good research lately in into this question and and the dynamics of the the emperor. And, and I say that specifically the emperor, the Japanese emperor's decision to uh, surrender, or at least to to accept sufficient terms that would bring about the the end of the war. Uh, because if you if you look at the timelines. It seems apparent that the, the first atomic bomb and you know the firebombing campaign before that um, hasn't led uh, the, the the people responsible for Japan and particularly the emperor to um, to believe that surrender is the right course. And then, uh, coincidence, that several factors happen in in close succession. You get the second bomb. So there's a, a realization on the Japanese part. Well, this is not a fluke. This is a weapon that the that the uh, United States has and is willing to use. And also, uh, the Soviets invade uh, in Manchuria and they they tear through Japanese Japanese positions. And I think it's those things uh, as well as the growing realization on the emperor's part and I I think the Soviet invasion is one of the triggers for this but but I think there's there's a whole series of factors that lead up to it the emperor begins to recognize that what his military advisors are telling him is not true he can't trust them anymore you know and they've been saying look you know it, 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 japanese you know culture and, and and people we will survive we have the wherewithal to resist sufficiently even though we're going to lose islands and positions etc uh, we can resist our enemies, uh, and I think that he starts to realize that that perhaps that's not true, and so he's staring at this possibility that uh, Japan will be crushed to the extent that they're, you know that, that his line and the nation as he believes it to be may become no longer viable uh, and, and so he takes steps to try to preserve it. Uh, and surrender is a step that can that can do that, uh, and so he buys into it. One thing that I don't think gets looked at quite enough in the debate that may also have been a factor in that decision making is the degree to which um, uh, the conveyance of supplies and material in and around the the home islands was being curtailed by uh, mining. You know, many of the b twenty nine missions were dropping mines. Uh, to prevent the movement of of ships and material, um, Japanese railway uh, ferries were being destroyed by uh, American carrier planes, and so there's uh, starvation that the, that the home islands are facing uh, that I think would have been absolutely terrible in nineteen forty six if if the war had been allowed to
0: continue. You think that those nuclear bombs were in fact uh, a game changer? In other words, it definitely was maybe maybe not the straw that broke the camel's back. Maybe the straw was the Soviets coming in or something else. But it was certainly one of the many straws that were thrown on that did make a decisive difference. And without that, maybe the war would have been prolonged and and mass casualties would have come some other way.
1: Yeah, I think they're important and that they do feed into... Japan's decision making I I don't think that they are decisive in and of themselves I think it's a it's a compounding of these various these various factors
0: okay so why did you write the mastering the art of command I mean there's a lot of books on world war ii and what was the uh, the purpose for you and the audience that you had in mind in your latest book
1: there are a couple of different reasons. Uh, the one is I wanted to extend the approach that I'd taken with a, a prior book called *Learning War*, which looks at the U.S. Navy uh, in the early twentieth century as a as a complex adaptive system as a way to try to a- explain and understand learning and innovation, uh, particularly in the U.S. Navy, but sort of more broadly in in human organizations. And I wanted to extend that by looking a little bit more at how an individual or individuals could exert influence in, in a system like that. Cause there's some people react to this idea of uh, complexity and looking at complex systems with the feeling that, well, it, you know, if it's all these uh, intermingling factors, then what influence do individual humans have? You know, why, why should I do anything if, if, you know, it's sort of all these Constraints that are around me and the influence of all of us sort of acting together that lead to these broader broader trends that sweep people along. What what role do individuals play? And so I, I wanted to look at that, uh, and then it seemed like a very good vehicle for for that.
0: But what about MacArthur? I mean, MacArthur was a was also an individualist. I mean, he was kind of in some ways personified individualism even more than Nimitz.
1: Oh, absolutely. I think MacArthur would be fascinating. There are a number of uh, good studies of, of his. I remember relying on uh, Rich Frank's or Rich Frank has written. Uh, it's, it's not a very big book, but it's quite good uh, on MacArthur and um, uh, Peter Dean. Yeah, it's over here on the shelf so I can see it. Uh, has written he's he's an australian and he's written a book called macarthur's coalition which looks at how uh macarthur waged the war particularly the the early portion of the war when uh he was making extensive use of Australian military forces, uh, and as you can imagine, the uh, Dean's perspective, you know, reflects sort of the the Australian perspective, but also I think it, it's is a fair assessment of, of MacArthur's leadership ability. So I, I'd recommend both of those. Uh, but I mean, when you come down to it, part of the reason is you know, the Naval Institute was looking for a book on on Nimitz, and they asked me if I was interested. And you know, if if you're like me, you know, interested in in naval history enjoy researching these subjects. Um, when someone comes knocking and says, Hey, would you write a book on Nimitz? Yeah. You don't say no.
0: Yeah. I mean, and your book has such an incredible level of detail. It made me think that you were a fly on the wall. Like how did you accumulate all this? Because here's, I'm a writer as well. And I know that for every word I, for every 10 words I write, I delete nine of them. And, And I'm sure you're probably the same way. I mean, in other words, what a lot of people who read books don't realize is that most writers write an incredible amount do an incredible amount of research and only a tiny fraction of all that is actually put into print and so when I'm reading your book I'm like my god this is like the filtered version that we're getting which is still packed with jam-packed with information what level of detail you must have gone through in order to just say okay these are the chunks that are still worth putting in and and, uh, there's got to be so much detail I don't know how you accumulate all this command unless you are about 150 years old and somehow you were there
1: (laughs) i was i was not there i wish for some of these conversations i i wish i was because the navy had a habit and nimitz embraced it of having these these conferences they would they would bring people together i mean today we call them meetings typically but you know bring people together share ideas and uh hash them out uh face to face and try to work through uh, agreements that, that make sense and that bring diverse perspectives together. And s- records of some of these are preserved. Like there are minutes from the regular conferences that, uh, Nimitz and King had. There are minutes from the conferences that uh, Nimitz had with, um, Gormley, uh, the commander of the South Pacific area, uh, in mid 1942. Uh, but some of these other conferences there, there aren't. Uh, we have personal recollections, and, and we have records of the decisions that emerged from them. But we do not know, you know, who said what or in what sequence, uh, specifically. And so, it was important to me to try to get different perspectives on some of those conferences to try to draw those details out um, to to sort of extrapolate from what we did know to to draw some. Um, Intelligent conclusions or guesses, I guess, about about what did happen in in some of those sessions. One thing that I think it's important to remember. I mean, you're absolutely right. There's a great deal of writing that doesn't make it into the book, uh, and and the Naval Institute has some targets in terms of you know what size they think works for a book, how long it should be. Uh, and initially I was far in excess of that. Uh,
0: you had what, half a million words.
1: (laughs) It wasn't quite that many. No, but, uh, (laughs) I'll just say it was, it was, it was significantly over their target. Yeah. It was in that neighborhood, uh, 200,000 or so. Uh, and, and I had to get it down to, I, I think the final count was somewhere around 130. So, so there's a lot, you know, that's about a third. The, that didn't make it
0: And for those who don't know uh, For a writer to chop away Like going from 200,000 words To 130,000 words It's like you having five babies And somebody telling you You have to kill two of them <laughs>
1: it felt like that sometimes (laughs) it did uh he's like what do i I mean it's already down to the bone what do i cut and i need you know three thousand words out of this chapter i will Um, say this
0: though trent is that whenever somebody puts a gun to my head and forces me to cut despite all my objection i have to be honest and realize that after all said and done when i look at it five years later i realize you know what it's a better book because I did cut that out. But at the moment that you're doing it, you feel that it's so utterly wrong.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yes. Yes. And you get, you, you get creative. Like how, how can I turn this paragraph into a sentence? Right. Like what is exactly. the most important thing right. about this paragraph? And, and, and how do I keep it in there? And, and I do think, you know, to your point, I do think it made the book uh, stronger. And I think in some respects it moves faster. Some areas it moves faster than I wanted it to, but uh, it, it is, I tried to squeeze as much of the essence of everything that I had found in, in, into the book.
0: One of the takeaways, and tell me if I think you agree with me or maybe or not, but the United States military, a lot of people focus on the sheer materiel or the you know volume and the technology and the sheer uh, industrial might that its military have and the numbers and all that stuff. But From your book, it seems that one of the key takeaways is the real true secret sauce of the United States military is its adaptability, its ability to kind of be uh, not so much command control all the way down from the very top. It gives commanders on the ground a lot more flexibility and it's more decentralized, especially in the case of Admiral Nimitz. But I think that same kind of attitude pervades in many other of the branches as well. And that is the secret sauce that many other militaries, and we're looking right now at the Ukraine-Russia war and Russia having some severe problems. And a lot of people identifying it's because it has such a top-down structure and and doesn't give as much flexibility to the commanders on the field. Is that a fair summary of one of the secret sauces of the United States?
1: I think So oh, it's certainly something that I tried to draw out here in this context. And, and I know others have tried to do it in other U.S. military contexts uh, in World War II or, or, or elsewhere. Um, there's a, a good book. I think it's called, if I remember right, it's called Closing with the Enemy. I can't remember the author, but it's about how the subtitle, I think, is how the GIs fought the war in Europe. And it, and it talks about that. It talks about the Army's ability to adapt to the specific context of the war in Western Europe. Uh, and and adjust, you know, tactics and techniques to try to overcome uh, their German opponents. And uh, they, they, uh Frank Hoffman, has uh, written a good book recently, also by the Naval Institute, uh, called "Mars: Adapting," which is a series of case studies about U.S. military adaptation uh, in in wartime. This is a, a subject that is, I think, getting more more study. And I think it's really important because uh, there are gonna be mistaken assumptions. And and what I thought was really interesting looking in detail at the at the Pacific War, speaking about assumptions, you know, Imperial Japan and the United States go into the war with different assumptions, almost different paradigms for what kind of war uh, they're gonna fight and and how. Uh, they could achieve victory. you know the theories of victory are different, and so what you see in its early phases is is wrestling over this this context. Which of these nations is going to be able to impose its sort of context for the war, its theory of victory on on the other. And and eventually the the United States and its allies gain the upper hand there. Nimitz is a key is a key part of that. But the ability to adapt and adjust not just to uh Japanese tactics and techniques, but also to the nature of of the war in the Pacific is is, is part of that. Tying it back to materiel. I, I do think that one of the things that uh, really comes out when you look closely at, at, at the history is, yes, the, the United States produces a vast amount of, of material, right? The arsenal of democracy, it's, it's true, it's there, but that material has to be in the right place at the right time. Otherwise, it's wasted. And so there is a great deal of effort and we see adaptation and uh, individual initiative and creativity here to figure out how logistics ought to work in the Pacific how to get that material to the right place at the right time in a way that supports the rapid pace of operations that's going to be necessary to to uh, bring the war with Japan to a conclusion as early as possible and 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 so it's I, I, I do think that um, that kind of creativity and adaptability um, to your point is is one of the secret sauces of of the United States and it's something that uh, you know nationally we we try to encourage or at least we tell ourselves that we try to encourage that right? Um, entrepreneurship is, is an American theme,
0: right? And it's a hard thing to kind of teach other cultures. So now what we will do in, uh, this is the end of part one. And we talked about the history in part two, which will, for those who will tune in next week on our next uh, podcast episode, I'm going to ask you Trent, a bunch of questions regarding the present day and kind of the future. And, and just to tease out that episode, I'm going to these are the questions we're going to talk about hypersonic missiles will they make navies obsolete uh what about the recent taiwan war game scenario and what do you think about it and what happens if we could shrink the united states military united states navy by to 25 percent of its current size what would happen to the world and what do you think about the russian ukrainian war that's going on and how do you think it was going to end that is what we're going to discuss in the next episode are you going to be ready for that Trent? (laughs)
1: <laughs> you're going to make me stick my neck out and <laughs> go beyond what I'm really comfortable with But subscribe. subscribe
0: to this podcast and then you'll listen to it next, next week here we go and that ends this episode of the WanderLearn podcast where we explore travel, technology, and transformation if you'd like to see the show notes with links to what we've talked about go to WanderLearn.com and click on this episode if you'd like to connect with me just remember F. Tappon that's my first initial and my last name Ftapon is always my social media username. My website is ftapon.com. Do you want to leave me an anonymous voicemail where you can make a comment or ask a question? Then go to speakpipe.com ftapon. Furthermore, if you'd like to get rewarded for supporting my projects, then go to patreon.com ftapon. That's where you can pick up some remarkable rewards for as little as $2 a month. Now, five quick favors. Number one, subscribe to the WanderLearn podcast. Two, download it. Three, share it. Four, review it. And five, sign up for my newsletter at wanderlearn.com. Our theme music was composed by Eric Stratman. This is Francis Tapon, encouraging you to wander and learn.